Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Joe Giles, Executive Director of the Women's Fund of Omaha. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. As executive director of the Women's Fund of Omaha, Joe leads a 13-member team to address gender-based inequities in our community. Before joining the Women's Fund of Omaha, Joe worked with the Coalition for a Strong Nebraska, helping citizens participate more fully in the public policy advocacy process. She is also an award-winning media relations professional and journalist with experience at the agency M Space and Lovegren the University of Nebraska Medical Center Public Relations Department, and as a television reporter and anchor for Omaha's KPTM Fox 42 News. Joe has a master's degree in journalism from the University of Missouri, Columbia, a bachelor's degree in psychology and African-American studies from Washington University in St. Louis, and a certificate in public health from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Joe enjoys community service and is the current board president for the Omaha Public Library Foundation and serves on the boards of Fontenelle Forest and the Friends of KIOS, a board on which I also serve. She also is a founding board member of the Nebraska Journalism Trust, which will soon launch a statewide independent digital news outlet called Flatwater Free Press. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. I'm so happy to be here with you. The Women's Fund of Omaha's work tackles gender-based inequities in our community. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what are those inequities? And here's the sadness, um, because you mentioned they are many. So um, why don't we at least start, if you don't mind, with you talking about those inequities? Sure, happy to. Um, I think one of the main focuses could be economic security. So we can start there. That encompasses how women make a living. So when you think about things like pay equity, um, that women still do not make the same amount of money that men make for the same job. You know, and we think about how households are now where there are lots of single parents, single moms. There are also a lot of two parent um, or, or two income households. And if women are making the same as men, now you're lifting an entire household, not just the woman that's there. So economic security is huge. Making sure all women have high wage or high um, skill jobs. That also leads to things like affordable housing. Um, it also leads to the importance of childcare and the importance of early childcare. One of the things we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic is the issues that we as the Women's Fund have been talking about for years have now been highlighted because we've seen what essential workers have struggled with, and that is the lack of high-paying jobs, um, the lack of affordable housing, places that are safe and high quality as well as affordable. The lack of childcare, as so many parents have struggled with childcare locations being closed due, the, due to the pandemic, having to remote uh, teach their children in school and not having jobs that allow the flexibility to do that. So there are many ways in which um, economic security is important. Another interesting topic that we at the Women's Fund have dealt with, in addition to equal pay, is a salary history ban. So when you think about people are now emerging from the pandemic and those who have lost jobs and may be applying for different types of positions or a different industry, and you see a job posting and it doesn't tell you what the salary is. So 
there's a question of when you have limited time, do you want to apply for something when you don't know what that range is? And then in any negotiation process, if the employer asks you, well, what were you making at your last job? And you say, let's just say 40,000. And the employer knows that the person previously was making 55,000. So now you're in a position as the potential employee, not having that information and not being able to adequately negotiate for the salary that would make the most sense for yourself and or your family. So disclosing um, not only in the job application process, uh, what the salary is for that particular job, and then also banning that salary information because what employers may often do is say, well, I can only, I don't have to pay that new person 55,000. I can pay them 45 and that person will be really happy um, but, you know, when you look at the pattern of discrimination and women tend to make less than men and women of color now make less than white women. So now you're perpetuating a system of inequity and a system of discrimination. You mentioned the pandemic. Um, I'm reaching here for silver linings because it feels like there aren't many. But one thing the pandemic did do is reveal, I think, more starkly the inequality that exists between men and women in the workforce and the systems in place that, as you just illustrate, perpetuate some of those. Are there any particular avenues the Women's Fund is exploring in terms of redressing those locally? So you mentioned equal pay, and I'm wondering how you're getting around that. Certainly the salary history ban, but you also mentioned childcare. I'm sure schooling and women being the primary at-home teacher and carer for children and also for perhaps elderly parents too. So I'm wondering what other ways you're thinking about economic security, especially in light of the pandemic. You know, one of the solutions that we've often looked to at the Women's Fund is through public policy. We have advocated for many pieces of legislation that would, at the state level, be able to provide some solutions. So one of them, for example, with childcare, and something that many partners have been working on for years in the state is increasing the childcare subsidy. So what that is, is the level at which parents are able to access assistance to help in the paying of childcare. And what we've often seen in some of these programs is what's called a cliff effect. So if you make a certain amount of money, as soon as you take a pay increase, say you get an extra 50 cents an hour, well, now you've made just enough to fall over a cliff and you lose your benefits. So when we're trying to encourage people and reward them for hard work and um, you know, wanting them to move into higher levels of responsibility and are rewarded with that through promotion, it often is not a financial benefit for them as a whole to take a promotion because they lose the assistance with childcare. And if anybody knows the cost of a young child. Uh, I, was, I was talking to a friend uh, who is expecting later this year, and she mentioned it was $330 a week for an infant in childcare. And that's just one example. Um, and so when you think about how much that would cost for someone who is an essential worker and not making a large salary, very difficult. So um, the Women's Fund and other partners were able to pass LB 485 this legislative session. Senator Wendy DeBoer was an incredible partner and brought that legislation to increase the amount of, that a person could make in order to eliminate that cliff effect and allow them to continue to get uh, assistance with childcare. So basically, it's a stair step. So as their income goes up, then it stair steps down the assistance instead of having them fall over a cliff. 
So that's one example of what we've been able to do legislatively. Um, also this session, we strengthened food security. So there was another bill that had a very similar cliff effect um, that happens with childcare. And it was LB 108 uh, introduced by Senator John McAllister. And he has been an incredible partner. There were several Republicans that uh, overrode the governor's veto on that particular bill to uh, strengthen food security by increasing the amount of food assistance that an individual could receive, um, which is critical during the pandemic. We want people to have food, we want people to have housing, we, we want them to uh, have access to childcare so that then they can go out and work if that's their choice. So many solutions have public policy implications and the Women's Fund really works to identify those and address them and partner with others that have like-minded ideas. Let's go. Are you ready? You've been staring since I came in. I know you want to get to know me. Uh-huh. But honestly, I came with my girls. Want to dance by ourselves. Can't you tell? Baby, baby, I have thick skin. Yeah. I don't let things get to me. But do you want me to spell? For you right now, I'm not feeling your vibe Crystal clear that you're head over heels But don't come any closer, my dear Cause when I get mad, I cannot control what might happen You think you can Put your hands on my body I'm no damsel in distress Come too close, I might just lose it I knock you down like boom, 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 boom Another area of focus that manifested degree of inequity between the genders um, that is focused on by the Women's Fund of Omaha, the area of women in leadership, or should mm-hmm. I say perhaps the um, holding back of women Would you talk a little bit more about that particular area of focus? Some of the genesis of when the Women's Forum was started over 30 years ago now was looking at women in the workforce and not only in the workforce, but in leadership positions and looking at the composition of boards across our city and where are women in leadership in C-suites as presidents or CEOs or executive directors. And by and large, it's very similar to what it was 30 years ago, unfortunately, where um, the the numbers of women have not yet equaled half of the population, which is the difference between men and women, is that women are about 50% of the population. And so in in our estimation, uh, women should comprise 50% of boards, 50% of elected bodies, you know, 50% of individuals in a C-suite um, at, at the management, senior management levels. Uh, and we're still trying to work to you know, encourage people to look at the diversity of candidates and what women bring. Women think differently than men. We process differently. Um, it's, it's nothing but a strength to have different perspectives as part of a high-functioning team. It feels as if there are so many um, hurdles for women to assume leadership positions. And and I think some of them are manufactured and some of them have some grounding in a reasonable interpretation of the situation, Um, albeit that with a little ingenuity and willing, we could remove those particular rational barriers. Are there any in particular that you either individually or, or the Women's Fund in particular it's sort of really focused on um, if you could just get rid of one or two of these barriers, it, it would allow at least a, a, you know, a, a greater proportion of, of women to have this uh, opportunity to be leaders. I'll say two things. I think one would be the more we highlight women in leadership and that sparks dreams and ideas of younger people. And when we raise younger people to think differently then the community in which we are now, then that's one way to make an impact. And you're looking in, and you're playing the long game at that point, right? We're thinking strategically about how do we encourage young girls 
in adolescence to, to really see um, themselves and empower youth to see themselves in the way in, in which they want to be and the way that they are currently moving in that direction. So the more that we can highlight what women are doing and all of their brilliance and uh, an impact in our community. And the other piece of that are continuing conversations with individuals who are starting to get it and can become allies and start to see the ways in which there could be a lack of women advancement in the industries in which they touch. One of the very interesting stories from the legislature was um, a gentleman who was a state senator and didn't really understand the cost of childcare because in his lived experience, you know, he's, you know, maybe in his, you know, mid sixties, his wife stayed home with the children. So he had no real reference that childcare could be as expensive as $330 a week until he called his daughter who, um, is a professional working woman and her, he has three grandkids and he called his daughter and said, um, so tell me, do you use childcare? And what's the cost? And, and that conversation of, geez, dad, you know, how, I can't believe you didn't know that this is how much I'm paying for childcare. And then the light bulb went off. So the more conversations we can have with people understanding you know, these are the ways in which we support women in the workplace. And I think what we found in COVID across all industries is that all workers are really thriving. You know, productivity hasn't suffered in the way that people might have feared would happen when we all started working remotely. So as we think about what it looks like to come back into the office, and we try to replicate what was, maybe we need to be thinking about what could be and how we continually, how we can continually support workers, particularly women who are, are often struggling with caregiving responsibilities at home and also wanting to be the very best employees that they, that they can and they will be. We don't have systems that associate a cost to that labor that is assumed by women or historically has been assumed by women around the home or child caring or caring duties generally and how that invisible labor has supported you know capitalism basically well not only the physical labor but you know one of my coworkers and I often talk about the mental labor that women bear in in terms of child care um and just managing children's schedules and Summer, summer activities. My son is 10. So uh, managing playdates and birthday parties and, and a lot of that falls on me. Um, and I'm the one that's sending calendar invites to my husband that says, oh, don't forget, yeah, our son has this thing. And, and by the way, his birthday party is going to be at this day at this time. And, um, you know, so that extra mental coordination that a cost isn't associated with that, but it, it, um, it's a lot of additional labor. Struck down in the middle of it, I built up something to destroy. I dried out in a summer that I didn't know why I was waiting for. of our broken body I can't play with the pieces of our broken body in terms of other work that is being focused on by the women's funds certainly the need for sexual literacy 
tackling uh, violence against women. And that idea of bodily autonomy is also a value of the organization too. And so before we talk a little bit more about uh, you know, other, other things that you're doing, would you talk a little bit more about that particular facet of the Women's Fund's work? Oh, yes. That's so important as well. I mean, when you think about um, wanting women and young girls to be able to live and experience life to their full potential, a lot of that intersects with bodily autonomy and ensuring that you have the information and what you need to be able to choose when and if you're going to have a family. That's huge. Um, freedom from violence. Um, we focus on community partners. And we give out grants to partners that are serving individuals who identify as, as female and men who have experienced sexual assault, domestic violence, um, or sex trafficking. And again, when we see what's happened with COVID, a lot of that has increased um, during the pandemic. And it's been really challenging for people who are living in abusive households and not necessarily having the economic freedom or the ability to leave um, dangerous situations. So that is a key part of our work in terms of making sure that women have what they need to be successful. Um, and then sexual literacy, uh, I, at this moment in time, there's a lot of conversation in our state around Department of Education and, and comprehensive sex ed standards, which is so important to ensure that all students are heard and can be seen in curriculum across our state. And young people are really struggling because there isn't the language uh, in school to be able to help them navigate some of those tricky conversations. And as I've been talking with people, I ask them to remember, well, you know, what was it like when you were an adolescent? What were those conversations like in your household? How did they go? Uh, most people cringe, uh, many adults cringe and think, oh, you know, I wish my mom or dad or whomever um, would have handled it this way, or maybe you didn't handle it in the way you wanted to with your um, children when they were entering, entering adolescence. So the concept of having trusted adults is so important for young people to get information. Otherwise, they're looking to their peers, they're looking to the internet, they're looking at uh, pornography. And what we want is to normalize conversations and to make sure young people have the information they need before they make decisions where they um, want to become sexually active. What are the most common objections to uh, equipping youth and adults with knowledge and the ability to self-determine how they want to treat their bodies and to be treated? There's a couple of reasons the opposition um, has indicated, and one of those is that the role to discuss sexuality should lie with a parent, which we understand that a lot of people may think that. Um, however, not every child has the benefit of being in a safe home with a trusted adult who can have those conversations with them. Many children experience abuse in the home, either with parents or with close relatives. So that's a enormous barrier to, to having a child feel safe um, to have those conversations. And then the other piece of it is that there are many LGBTQ youth who want to be seen and understand um, the gender expression, gender identity, sexual orientation, all of that needs to be discussed so that young people know and, and can accept other young people, it reduces bullying, it reduces harassment, and it allows all students to be able to thrive. So, you know, there's a culture that doesn't want, that wants to pretend that those individuals don't exist in our state. Um, and we're not going to talk about it, right? You see no evil, you hear no evil, you seek no evil. And, and the reality is, is that there's the wonderful young people who are hurting, um, who don't feel valued and seen, and we want to ensure their mental health so that they are able to thrive in our state. You know, I think it's so funny because I, I, I don't know. The, I'm sure there's some data on this, but um, 
you know, how many parents either enjoy, and I bet very few kids enjoy or find vaguely rewarding the conversation they have with their parents in their household about the birds and the bees. I mean, we can't even call it sex. You know, it's, it's birds and bees and things that never goes well. And I think my parents would have been thrilled if someone else could have actually taken that on in a, in a a well-crafted expert way that isn't seedy and certainly isn't going to, you know, talking about it doesn't encourage kids to run out and say, we've got to be doing sex now. (laughs) I know. Well, and some one of the comments was about the content that's taught in elementary school, so K through six. And, you know, the standards, the original version were age appropriate, they're accurate descriptions of um, body parts and what they do. And all of that is so important for prevention because we, you do see, unfortunately, young children who are sexually assaulted in elementary school. So when you give young people the language to be able to understand what their bodies are and what they do and how they function, um, then that gives that young person the language to then be able to explain if something's happened to them um, that is inappropriate. So it's really about prevention um, before you you need to have that information. And I've been telling people about a conversation I had with my son, who's, he's a fifth grader going into fifth grade now, but I clearly remember kindergarten and first grade. And he asked the question about family structures. And just starting to learn in the social studies curriculum, you're drawing pictures about who's in your family, who lives with you. And you know, he was noticing that there were some other students in the class that maybe lived with mom a couple of days and dad another day and or only mom or only dad or have two moms or two dads. And, and so children are just naturally curious. It's the adults that bring all of the emotion and drama to the conversation where kids just want to know, is that normal? Am I normal? You know, and so in having conversations and saying, you know, it's great that every kid has someone that loves them. It's an adult that they can trust, that cares for them, and then wants the very best for them. And it doesn't matter if it's two men or two women or, um, you know, mom and dad or dad, just dad or just mom or grandma or aunt or uncle. You know, it's just that you have someone that cares for you and wants the best for you. And that's what's really important. So, you know, this idea that we shouldn't talk about diverse family structures is ludicrous in my, in my opinion because... We, we want to support all young, young people, and it's really about them and, and their development and what they need. So I'm going to switch gears then, but link back to something you were talking about earlier, which is um, women in leadership. You recently ran for public office, and that public office was a seat with the Douglas County Commissioners, District 7. Ultimately, you were not successful in that particular race, but you ran it nonetheless. What was it that motivated you to run for office and why that particular one? What were you thinking uh, you, you wanted to tackle? I really enjoyed my experience running for a Douglas County Commissioner, except for the end. That wasn't great, but the rest of the process was fantastic. Yeah, I have always had a passion for public service. 
it's just who I am. It's why I'm on three boards at the same time. And um, and just really passionate about community. What I was seeing with the Douglas County Commissioner race were a couple of things. Uh, as I had been working at the state level in public policy, we were looking at, at issues such as juvenile justice, um, health care, property taxes. And I felt as if I could contribute to that conversation and talking about the Douglas County Health Department. I have a certificate in public health from the Med Center. So I was really interested as we were experiencing COVID uh, and, and a real life public health pandemic, uh, I, I felt that you know, that skill set could be helpful in that conversation in terms of leadership. And I was also very concerned about juvenile justice. I have a son that's 10 and you know, thinking about what other young people are experiencing in our community and how we can ensure that the systems that are working are working with you know, young people in mind and their families and how we can address the entirety of a young person's life, not only the educational components, but healthcare, but mental and mental health um, and economic security as many young people are experiencing poverty across our community. So I was looking at that issue. And then also property taxes. A lot of people uh, tend to talk about that in, in across our state in various races. And it came up as a, in the county as well. And my experience working in and around the legislature, I felt like I had some um, ideas that we could think about as a county in, in changing some of what we do that could benefit homeowners and property owners in Douglas County. This is a question that I want to frame in the context of us having talked about women in leadership, the nature of the work that Women's Fund does, your own long history in community service, complete speculation on my part. So I acknowledge that up front. I have no knowledge of the person that actually won the race. You're uh, an African-American woman, your opponent in the race, you know, middle-aged white man. And so in that context, I would imagine that there are expectations and questions raised of, of each of you during the race that maybe were different. Now, as I say, I really don't know, but I am wondering from your perspective if your race felt different to the race that you saw of your opponent in the race and generally across the district. Yeah, I think your instincts are correct. Um, I heard a variety of perspectives from voters. There were some who voted along party lines, and that was one of the most frustrating things for me because I would call voters since we weren't able to go door to door during the pandemic. So I would call voters of all parties. It was a partisan race. And you know, I would go down the list and share who I was and why I was running and the issues that I cared about. And they would agree with me on every single thing. And then I would say, great, you know, can I count on your vote? And then say, and they would say, wait a minute, what party are you with? And as soon as I said, I'm running as a Democrat, and the conversation shut down, and they would say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to vote for you. I'm going to vote a red ticket all the way. And that was really disheartening because what I wanted to see was the conversation about policy, which we were having um, before the partisan uh, elements got in the way of that. You know, I certainly think that was a, a factor um, that my opponent didn't have to deal with because he was a, running as a Republican. And the dynamics of our district were such that it was the largest district in our county. So by far, there were more registered voters. I think there were something around 69,000 registered voters in District 7. So it was a huge swath from the Missouri River to the El Elkhorn River. Lots of different types of uh, individuals and economic levels within that. So there were certain areas of that district that were that were strongholds for Trump, and then there were other areas where um, people voted for Biden. And so I think what you saw were there were some Republicans and some independents that decided to vote for Biden, who then won the electoral vote for Douglas County and then switched back and voted a red ticket the rest of the way. And so when you're in a 
what we call a down ballot race. Um, so the top of the ticket are your president and your federal um, races, and then you get further down to ca- county commissioner, and, you know, um, so in legislature and then ballot initiative. So you know, once people made that choice to do one thing, then the rest of the ticket was impacted by what happened at the top. You sounded quite enthused by the experience, other than, as you say, not ultimately winning the seat. Is this the first time you've run? And you know whether or not it is, um, are you thinking that you've been bitten by a bug, then you'll keep persisting? This was the first time I ran, and I, you know, I may, I may, I may run again for something. We'll see. My husband is not excited about the idea at all. <laughs> Um, but for me, it was about public service and elevating ideas and talking about what kind of county do we want to be and looking at development and transportation in our county. Um, and, you know, I had some ideas about different ways in which we can levy taxes differently so that we can you know, ensure we have a metropolitan area that has different transit options and different options for county services. But it's, it's really about the conversation and the policy for me, and not so much the politics. And I think, unfortunately, what's happened in, in the last several years is the divisiveness that you see, and that discourages people from, from running and being a part of the solution, because they're afraid they'll get dragged into the typical problems. So Um, I try to stay at that high-minded level. with this theme of women in leadership you've led initiatives organizations um, you are now leading an organization which i think has quite a high public profile uh, especially around the issues that you're focused on and so I, i'm wondering how you have a sense of the perspectives of you as a leader now in the community not now but a leader in this role in the community and if you yourself have any sense of what is a leader, what, what, what are the requirements you're sort of imposing on yourself to be um, the best leader you can be? I think I'm just so passionate about the mission of the Women's Fund. And as I've gotten older, I've realized a couple of things. One, that usually if I listen to my gut, I'm pretty right <laughs> most of the time. My husband would, would only give you me a 70% rating, but I think it's higher than that. Um, but when I quiet myself enough to listen to that, that that is a guiding force for me. And then for the team in which I am privileged to be part of. I've also realized the importance of bringing your whole self to everything. You know, that includes all of your lived experience, all of the preparation that you bring and perspectives. And we're stronger as an entity when everyone shows up in that way. So it's encouraging people to show up and be who they are and encouraging others to receive the gift of what people bring when they're showing up in that space. And I think that's a way in which women can continue to lead because we embrace the fact that you think differently and that you bring different skill sets. And that's why it's so important to have women represented in elected office, 
because when you have decisions being made about, you know, should we offer extra assistance to childcare and you have older men who didn't have that lived experience and the majority of them are saying, well, well, we don't need that. We don't, we shouldn't pay for that. Let's pay for this other thing. Um, and you don't have people in the room who have a different lived experience. You can say, no, you know, if you, if you want um, economic development, then you need to have worker supports for the workers to then be able to, <laughs> to do, to do what you really want um, in our, in our communities and in our states. So it's, um, it's really important to be inclusive and to have people at the table who disagree, but bring a diverse perspective um, so that everyone is uplifted. And in the process of that, women and girls get to be who they want to be in the world. Where did this all come from? So clearly there's this passion, but this kind of um, energy doesn't come from nowhere. So I know part of it could be intrinsic uh, naturally, but um, what was your upbringing like, you know, when you were being shaped and formed and influenced, you know, what were the circumstances of your childhood and and your youth? And then you sort of those factors that motivated you in this way. I would say a lot of that is from my parents. I grew up in the South in the seventies and my dad went to get his PhD at age 55. So he's a very driven person. Um, my mom is the same way. Uh, they both raised myself, my sister and my, and my brother. I'm the oldest. Um, so I, I am the boss of my family. They would tell you that. <laughs> um, but you know, my parents really raised us to be independent thinkers. And um, my mom always worked and encouraged us to think about how we might be professionals in our careers and to be, you know, just watching them as driven as they were and the decisions that they made for us as a family just really sparked that interest in me. Um, I guess, you know, when you asked me if I'd run before, I did run for something now that I remember. In the fourth grade, I ran for student council. <laughs> and I didn't win then. So maybe the third time will be the charm. <laughs> for me. Um, but I remember my mom being so insistent that we pay attention to the news. And she really instilled in me the importance of civic engagement and making sure that your voice is heard. And when things aren't working, for you that you work to change the system so that it does work for you and then it will work for others like you. So I really appreciated um, experiencing and watching my mom do that uh, and, and my dad in his way for the years. How come the stars come to shine when it's dark from so far away show us where we are what makes the sun go to sleep every night? And what's it dreaming of? I wonder. How come the sky sometimes hides behind the clouds? Maybe it's just like me, a little bit scared of heights. Why does the rain always keep on pouring down when it's gray outside? It really makes me wonder. this long experience as a communications professional in many guises and the communications industry itself the media has has just shifted so so dramatically just in the last couple of decades and so in that context and your own personal experience could you could you talk a little bit more about what the flat water free press is and what you're trying hoping to achieve with it yeah so i've I have been a follower and a news junkie, as we call it, <laughs> for decades now. And when I was still a working journalist, I remember covering 9-11. That experience was impactful in, in so many ways. Uh, I really, 
enjoyed being a witness um, to the process of our country and how we how we responded to that. And that was one of the beautiful pieces of being a journalist is because you have a upfront seat to decision makers and how they're shaping our community. And I was at the time a, a city government beat reporter. And so my job on Tuesday mornings was to leave home and go to our city council meetings that started at nine. And so I'm on my way, I'm listening to news on the radio and I hear, um, I hear what's happening. I hear the, the first plane um, hit. And then as I get there and get, get into the green room, I, I remember the city council stopping the meeting and pausing and having a prayer and the immediate response of what do you do to lock down a government building and what do you do with employees and what do we do as a city? And, and so it was you know, interesting to see the response from that level. And then back at the station, we get to see all the footage that no one else sees. So we see it before the public sees it oftentimes, even in live situations. And so there were some really horrific images that were not displayed on television that we saw back in the newsroom. But after that incident, we really saw advertising stop and shrink in the news industry. And that's the fuel that allows um, news outlets to operate, quite frankly, are, are the commercials. So the model in the industry shifted after 9-11 because of the lost revenue. And then because of that, more decisions were made in the back end in terms of you know, hiring uh, more inexperienced individuals, shrinking the staff of a newsroom. A lot of our veterans uh, left and went other places. And that trend has continued since 9-11. That's why I'm so excited about the Flatwater Free Press, because it is an opportunity to do what many journalists get in the field to do, which is you want to have the time to dig into stories and issues that impact your community and have the time to really develop it and look at data and talk to multiple sources and dig into the nuance because so much is not just one side and the other side. It's the other side that you're not seeing and you, and you turn things around and look at it from a, a 360 perspective. Uh, and then also digging into the people which is what I loved on the campaign trail. I'm a people person, so I love meeting people and hearing their stories. And when you're a journalist, you know, people trust you with their story of who they are and their experience. And to be able to really sit with them without the time constraints of having to put something on the air, the luxury of, of being able to be a true storyteller and a true journalist. And that's what Flatwater Free Press is offering because the reporters and the freelancers and the journalists will have the time to dig into the issues that are important for our state and then be able to present the content um, free to other media partners and then operate on a subscription type model for individuals that want to get the news first and they can subscribe and, and get the newsletter. Given the difficulty of mainstream media to fund itself, how does this work as a sustainable proposition? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, we've really looked at the best practices of other, of other independent online news outlets. And there are 300 of them across our country. And Nebraska doesn't have one yet, but now we do. Um, so we've really looked at what others are doing and have utilize some of those best practices, which is very similar to an NPR model, National Public Radio, where it's member-driven. And so we think that there is a, a appetite, a desire for people to want to consume news that's independent, that's nonpartisan, um, that's done well. You know, our tagline is important stories, well told. And I think people want that because you know, many people are caught up in both sides of, you know, conservative and liberal media and where, where the truth lies. And it's wonderful to have an independent, nonpartisan news outlet that can say, here, we've, we, we've looked at the data, we've analyzed it, we've talked to people, 
who conducted this survey. We've interviewed it and we've looked at it from all, all different perspectives. And now here it is um, for community conversation. And I think people are really looking for those stories that aren't being told because traditional journalists don't have the opportunity to do it because the model is, is not as strong as it used to be. Are we going to see you in the field again with a microphone soon, Joe? No, I will not. I will not be a reporter. As a board member, I have no editorial input other than I get to consume news with everyone else. Um, but I, I did love that part of my journey, and we'll see what happens. You never know. Well, you're going to be too busy winning your third election race. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been telling people I the first pair of Tom's shoes that I bought years ago had this saying on it that said, the journey is the destination, which was impactful for me as a person because I tend to want to check off a box and get to a certain place. I am a goal-oriented person. And that looking at my shoes literally every day (laughs) and realizing that the journey is the destination really freed myself to be creative and, um, and thoughtful and strategic. You know, that was, that's that North star I was talking about is, you know, really embracing where we are. So I don't know what the future will be, but I'm on the journey and I'm loving every part of it. My guest today has been Joe Giles, Executive Director of the Women's Fund of Omaha. Joe, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, All too brief, I'm afraid, in the time that we have, but thank you so much. Oh, it was so fun. Thank you. I I felt like I could have talked to you forever. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.